From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Our political sphere never stops attracting people who think that they can get away with all sorts of misbehaviors, uh, even ones that are illegal, even ones that uh, completely go against the image of themselves that they have been trying to sell to the American people, and, and perhaps successfully so. That's Jake Tapper, Chief Washington Correspondent for CNN, host of The Lead with Jake Tapper, and co-host of State of the Union. In addition to his political reporting, he's interviewed multiple U.S. presidents and foreign leaders. He has also published six books. Tapper came on Stay Tuned in July of 2020 to discuss The Outpost, his book about the war in Afghanistan, which was later adapted into a movie. His new show for CNN is called United States of Scandal. It explores six American political scandals through interviews with the people at the heart of them. The first two episodes, from former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich and former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, aired on February 18th on CNN. We talk about political drama, what to expect in the 2024 presidential election, and the ongoing wars between Israel and Hamas and between Russia and Ukraine. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Lori, who asks, can you talk about how the Supreme Court selects which cases it decides to hear? Does the Chief Justice make the final call? Is there a formal process? Lori, that's a great question. Um, sometimes it makes sense to take a step back and talk about how these processes work that we talk about all the time on television and on the podcast without necessarily going into how these things work. So let's give it a shot. There is indeed a formal process. It's not all up to the chief justice. He's not that powerful. So appeals to the Supreme Court, um, as you may know, as opposed to other appellate courts, are unique because they are entirely discretionary meaning the justices as a group, not just the chief, can pick and choose which cases they decide to hear on appeal. And they're quite selective. It's very different with respect to other appellate courts. Federal civil and criminal appeals by courts below the Supreme Court are generally heard any time a losing party believes there's been an incorrect application of the law or procedural problem or some other compelling reason why the decision was wrong or unjust. And these courts, these lower courts, not always, but for the most part, 
must accept these appeals. In other words, federal appellate courts below the Supreme Court have very little discretion over whether they can hear an appeal or not. Now, when it comes to the Supreme Court, as an initial matter, in order for a case to be heard, a party first has to file a petition asking for something called a writ of certiorari. You may have heard that term used by experts from time to time. Often, instead of certiorari, we say cert for short, from Latin, meaning to be more fully informed. Now, if the Supreme Court decides to grant that petition, it orders the lower court to produce its record for review. But as I said earlier, the Supreme Court has complete discretion over which of these cases to review, and it typically grants certiorari, or cert, only for those cases with national significance or where federal appeals courts have rendered conflicting decisions what's called by experts and practitioners a circuit split. And even then, it takes four of the nine justices, doesn't need to include the Chief Justice John Roberts, but four of the nine justices have to agree to grant cert before the full court will consider a matter. And just for some context here, the Supreme Court receives 7,000 petitions every year and grants only about 100 to 150 of them. So, as I said, the Supreme Court is really quite selective when deciding which cases to review. Now, there's another very small category of matters within the court's original jurisdiction, which means these cases go straight to the Supreme Court. They do not pass go. This category of cases involves either disputes between the states or disputes between ambassadors and other high-ranking ministers. They don't happen that often. But, for example, just last term, the court decided New York versus New Jersey, which dealt with the issue of whether New Jersey could unilaterally withdraw from its Waterfront Commission Compact with New York. In those cases, the trial itself is held by the Supreme Court. There's no lower court decision being reviewed and no cert petition. But this is a unique category of case in which the court has no discretion over whether to hear those cases. And by the way, when you look at the numbers, it makes sense that the Supreme Court is highly selective. There are only nine Supreme Court justices, as compared to something like 180 federal appeals court judges throughout the country. There's just not the time to handle every case. This question comes in an email from Juliet, who asks, do you think that the Manhattan judge in Trump's criminal case paid any mind to the campaign calendar in setting Trump's trial date? Well, that's a terrific question. As you may know, there was a court proceeding last week in which Trump's lawyers objected vehemently to the setting of a trial date any time in the near future. The judge overrode those objections pretty dismissively and set jury selection to begin in the Manhattan criminal trial of Donald Trump for March 25th, just a few weeks away. Donald Trump's lawyer stated in court flatly and emphatically, quote, we strongly believe for a trial to start on March 25th is a great injustice, end quote. But the judge wasn't having it. The lawyer went on to say, quote, the fact that President Trump is going to now spend the next two months working on this trial instead of out on the campaign trail running for president is something that should not happen in this country, end quote. The judge then asked, what's your legal argument? The lawyer said, that is my legal argument. The judge then ended the debate saying, that's not a legal argument. Now, of course, the judge is understandably trying to be above the political fray and appear above the political fray, and that's all important. But obviously, he's operating within a certain context. The Trump team brings up politics and the campaign calendar again and again and again. But the context in which he's making the decision is interesting. First of all, the idea that these criminal proceedings are somehow politically harmful to Trump just isn't borne out by the evidence and by the polling. In fact, the stronger argument seems to be in the public sphere that the criminal cases against Donald Trump have bolstered his support and caused him to go up in the polls. So that's the context in which this judge is operating. Also, as the campaign unfolds, pretty much as I speak today, Donald Trump has effectively locked up the nomination 
And there are reports that the Trump team is circulating that they believe they will have technically and fully locked up the nomination by getting enough delegates to be declared the nominee as soon as the middle of March, some days before the March 25th trial date. So in some ways, I imagine the judge is thinking to himself, if not aloud, that this is just as good a time to try this case as any other. Now, as I hypothesized with Joyce Vance on the Insider podcast this week, I wonder if it would have been a different result or a different set of reasoning if instead of Donald Trump having basically clinched the nomination and not needing to appear on the trail because he has no effective competition, even from Nikki Haley, who stays in the race. If, on the other hand, we had a situation where he was in a tight deadlocked race with one or more adversaries for the GOP nomination, and you had essential and important and vital primaries coming up, would the judge have been so cavalier in keeping him off the campaign trail? Maybe, because no one is above the law, supposedly. I do think in those circumstances, the judge might have been moved a little bit more by Todd Blanche's arguments in court. I'll be right back with my conversation with Jake Tapper. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. 
Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Jake Tapper wears many different hats. Journalist, author, cartoonist, and news anchor. Now he's out with a new limited series about six defining political scandals in American history. Jake Tapper, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, Preet. How are you doing, man? I'm good. So you have a new special. Uh, congratulations. It's called The United States of Scandal, which kind of explains what it's about in the name. So do you have any overall conclusion about the state of our union when it comes to scandal? Is it strong? <laughs> well, we got a lot of scandals to choose from, if that's what you mean. I yeah. mean, it's it's strong for the likes of me and you. I think that uh, it's tough to draw conclusions about 2024 scandals based on the six that we do in this series, all of which happen between 2000 and 2015. I think there are some broad strokes that you could make. One of them is that having... If you are a powerful person, having people around you who are willing to criticize you, who can feel that they can offer constructive suggestions, that is an important thing to have. Another one is that our, our political sphere never stops attracting people who think that they can get away with all sorts of misbehaviors, uh, even ones that are illegal, even ones that are uh, completely go against the image of themselves that they have been trying to sell to the American people and and perhaps successfully so. So those would be the two broad conclusions. Is there any particular reason you selected these six? How, how was the decision-making process and which scandals you would present in the series? It's a great question. So at first, I wanted to tell... The first rule was I didn't want to tell stories of scandals that everybody pretty much knew already. So anything involving... Uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment or anything involving Donald Trump, we did not think would be good fodder just because those were stories that people probably felt they knew pretty well. We wanted to go into things, stories, tales that maybe they remembered, but didn't necessarily remember all the details. So that's one. Two, uh, it was to a degree booking dependent. Who could we book to tell their story? We didn't only rely on that. But it was a big part of our decision-making process because we wanted to provide insights that were new so that people, even people who had covered the scandal would get something from it. And then third, um, I wanted to do Abscam because uh, it's an exciting, interesting story that very few people remember. 
Uh, for those who don't know, it was an FBI sting operation involving bribery of members of Congress. They made a film uh, out of it, um, American Hustle, with uh, Bradley Cooper and um, Christian Bale. And um, and Ozzie Myers, who was my congressman at the time from uh, South Philadelphia, uh, who w- got in trouble during Ab scam, we were talking to him. And then he had to go to jail for a different issue. He ended up having to go to prison for some sort of judicial election malfeasance. So so being out of prison was also a requirement. <laughs> Are there any others that, that got away that you wanted to do? There, I mean, there's no shortage of them. We kind of ended up, we did a little bit of work on Abramoff, but it didn't end up getting to where we in, a pl- in terms of interviews, it didn't end up getting to a place where we were ready for it, which is not to say that we won't revisit it if there's a season two. There are a few others um, that I want to do. And the truth of the matter is that that uh, you could do it. It's Scandals obviously don't only exist in politics. You could do a season two on Hollywood. You could do a season three on corporate America. You could do a season four on small town America. I mean, there's no shortage of unbelievable stories that you can tell. You know, in the six stories you tell, they're not all political, but most of them involve political figures. And in almost every case, inarguably one maybe doesn't apply, it was the end, you know, the the alleged scandal was the end of their political career. Mark Sanford is a more complicated example because he mm-hmm. was governor and then he came back as a co- member of Congress. You know, we talk about scandal and how that, affects people's careers. Now we have a guy, and you've mentioned him already, Donald Trump, who has been adjudicated a sexual abuser, defamer, fraudster, has four criminal cases pending against him, one of which involves a payoff to a an adult film star. And he is poised to be the Republican nominee and quite easily and plausibly could become the president again. Mm-hmm. Is the age of scandal and its consequence on someone's career, is that over? No. As we saw with uh, the expulsion and prosecution of George Santos, right. it's not over. But there is something particular about Donald Trump where his supporters and people in his party who don't want to get on the wrong side of him are able to look past the various scandals for various reasons, probably different reasons. One of them being, I think, a lot of his supporters and and probably other observers look at some of the prosecutions and think this seems like a political prosecution. This seems like they're picking on him. I'm not saying that's my point of view. I'm just saying I I could understand why Trump is using that as an argument and why some of his supporters believe it. Then there are, there are other issues having to do with, well, he's, he might be a scoundrel, but he's our scoundrel. uh, And he fights for us, even if he you know, gets on the wrong side of uh, self-righteous, fastidious types like uh, Preet Bharara and, and Mitt Romney. Um, you know, I, I don't think that in the same way that I don't think Donald Trump's endorsement is necessarily transferable in a general election. Uh, I don't think that his ability to weather the storm, uh, which, by the way, we don't know how much. I mean, we still have the criminal trials. Right. But I mean, but but any look, if you look at one of six to 10 of quote unquote scandals that have engulfed Donald Trump, any one of them would have failed 
a different political star, right? Look, just comments he made would have felled a different political star going after John McCain for not being a war hero. I mean, that would have... I mean, look, Joe Biden is now the president of the United States. He sought the presidency in 1988 and had to bow out of the race because, as I recall it, somebody fed him lines that were plagiarized from a UK uh, Labor Party leader, Neil Kinnock. And that, and that ended his, his candidacy. Seems kind of quaint. It, it did. There were other scandals that went along with that one that ended his candidacy. I think there were accusations about him plagiarizing in college or law school as well. And I wouldn't exactly say that his campaign had been catching fire. But yes, <laughs> you're right. Uh, in the fall of 1987, he had to drop out of the presidential race because of his unattributed use, plagiarism of a Neil Kinnock speech. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, there, I, there but, are... But, he, but even if just pause on Biden for a second, just so we take the historical viewpoint. So this is a thing that caused him to have to get out of the race in 1987 for the 88 cycle. Same guy, same plagiarism issues, conceded, runs in 2020. Of, the, of all the issues that came up in that campaign, I don't think the Neil Kinnock thing came up at all. At, at some point, is there a statute of limitations on scandal? Well, you also forgot that he ran for president in, oh, 2000, yeah. in 2008 and, and lost. Was, uh, yeah. So um, I don't know that there's a statute of limitations. There might have been a freshness issue having to do with that scandal. I mean, like it had happened literally when I was a freshman in college. And so like the degree to which anybody wanted to talk about it, he still gets called a plagiarist. I mean, but the question is, how much did anybody care and also, when you compared what he did to his opponent, yeah, <laughs> um, and his various and the various allegations about him, it, maybe it seemed small potatoes. Is part of the issue with Trump and his Teflon status that he never presented himself as a saint and never ran on virtue? I think that's part of it. I mean, one of the re one of the issues with John Edwards and Mark Sanford, both of which are stories that we tell in our series is that they were depicted by themselves as family men, as people who had these, you know, really tight families, very strong partner spouses, you know, and so the degree to which Mark Sanford's infidelity and John Edwards' infidelity undermined the, the public persona, I think, was one of the problems Elliot Spitzer even more so because not that he sold himself as a family man, but he sold himself as a this righteous crusader. And then it turned out he had been violating um, his own sexual trafficking laws that he had signed into law. He had violated that. So I, I think that's one of the things. I think there's also just something about Donald Trump where his supporters think of him as fighting for them and irritating and hating all the people that they hate. And the reality of that all doesn't matter as much, like in terms of, is Donald Trump a good father? Is he a nice person? Is he a, a family man, et cetera, et cetera? They don't, they don't think that, but that's also irrelevant to what they want. They want a fighter for their causes, and so they are willing to look the other way, or maybe they don't even care. For some of them, they like it. For some of them, they like, you know, his bad boy nature. I saw a woman wearing a shirt at a Trump rally that said, her shirt said, you know, something along the lines of grab me by the 
P word. Yeah. So there's no statute of limitations on scandal. Scandal is not behind us. But based on your research into this project and discovering politics for a long time, is there a difference in how the American public reacts to quote unquote scandal? Are we less prudish than we used to be? Or does it depend on the particular person and the particular facts and circumstances? Well, certainly um, the McGreevy scandal wouldn't have played out the same way. And we interview McGreevy for one of the episodes. McGreevy yeah. Do for you want to remind people what that yeah. is? The New Jersey governor, Democrat, uh, wife and kids. And he was, well, there's two sides of the scandal, two parts of the scandal. One of them is he was gay and living in the closet. Uh, he, that was a secret that he was gay. And this was 2004. So it was an era where being gay was still a liability for a politician in New Jersey. Um, George W. Bush got uh, reelected in no small part campaigning against same-sex marriage. So that that was that era 20 years ago. The, the real McGreevy scandal was that he had hired his lover, an Israeli named Golan Sapel, uh, as his Homeland Security advisor when he didn't really have any qualifications for that position. And Homeland Security advisor for the governor of New Jersey three years after 9-11 was actually a serious gig. Um, and that was actually the malfeasance, not the not so much the affair. But so anyway, th that's a long way of saying that I don't think that McGreevy necessarily his being gay would be as big a deal today. Although no, probably not because he wasn't it wasn't like he campaigned against same sex marriage. It, he wasn't a hypocrite in that regard, uh, even if he was infidelitous. Um, but generally speaking, you know, Donald Trump didn't invent the stay and fight template. Uh, a lot of American presidents so, you know, over the course of many years uh, did that. I think it was Grover Cleveland that uh, there was an a ma ma, where's my pa gone to the White House? Ha ha ha. Isn't that Cleveland? I, I, there, I think there's a long list of American presidents who weathered the storm of scandal. Bill Clinton certainly weathered the storm of scandal. Uh, in the Senate, David Vitter weathered the storm of scandal. He was a Louisiana politician credibly accused of visiting a prostitute, and he just stayed in the Senate and refused to answer questions about it and, for the most part, survived. He went back to Louisiana and, and uh, ran for governor. He lost, and I'm sure it didn't help, but uh, he was able to weather the storm. Is there a playbook for weathering the storm? And as you were speaking, I was remembering other examples that are not in your series, at least not yet. No, Al Franken senator from Minnesota, um, some people think that he should have stayed and fought harder and could have he remained- He didn't fight at all. He didn't fight at all. Do you have any observation about that in retrospect, having done this work? Yeah. You know, we interviewed um, his first accuser on my show and that interview, you know, she got to a place in the interview where basically she was saying all, he, all she wanted was an apology and she didn't think he needed to resign. The problem- he, he, there are two problems I see with how Franken approached this. One, you have to, everybody needs to remember the context of this. This is during that crazy year and change of Me Too when the media, the world, nobody really knew how to, there was no playbook for this. Because of that being the background, uh, Senator Franken did not want to be in the position of calling these women liars, even if he didn't remember things the same way they did, and even if he thought they were lying. So that, that, that made it a much more difficult response for him. The biggest problem he had, or the two biggest problems he had, is one, there was a special election in Alabama because the former senator was now the attorney general, Jeff Sessions. And so there was an open seat 
and the Republican nominee, Roy Moore, had been credibly accused of like inappropriate behavior with underage girls. And the Democrats thought that they could recapture that seat and they had a strong Democratic candidate, Doug Jones. And so that put them in a situation where they couldn't be seen, in their view, as tolerating any inappropriate behavior. And Al Franken, his scandal had the misfortune of happening right at that moment. And he is a senator from a Democratic-leaning state where he would be replaced by a Democrat no matter what. So that was one of the problems. And the other problem was that um, all the Democratic women in the Senate uh, called for him to resign. Right. And uh, so that was a lot of difficult stuff for him to face. Do I think he could have survived it? I do. But that's just a hypothesis. It's not based on fact. But I mean, if he had, in my view, if he had come forward and said, you know, I don't remember everything that people are saying the same way, but I've learned a lesson. And remember, I come from comedy and, you know, I can be goofy sometimes. And I see now that some people take it the wrong way and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to learn from this. I don't know. He perhaps he could have weathered it if he had done something like that. But he he didn't do anything. Uh, and, and then he was just uh, attacked over and over and over, and uh, then he ultimately just resigned. Yeah, it, it seems a one rule historically, although there are exceptions to this, and one exception is in your series that if you if you don't stay and fight and get past it, if you're in office, according to the historical record, and you leave, the comeback is very very difficult. Even if memories fade, and even if people you know think that there was an overreaction at the time, you know Elliot Spitzer tried to come back to a lesser office and failed. So did Wiener, didn't he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had a second problem. Um, and, and if he hadn't had the second problem, Anthony Wiener might have been second or third problem. I, I lost count. He might very well have become the mayor of New York City. And But there's a particular example that you have in your series, uh, Governor Mark Sanford. Mm-hmm. He did come back. Yeah, so ex- explain well, He never that. went anywhere. He never resigned. He served all two terms. Of his uh, governor. Oh, he didn't resign. And yeah, and he. Um, I had forgotten that. Yeah. And he uh, he served out the remainder of his term. He did not resign. Now, one of the reasons and we didn't really have time to get into this um, in this in this show in the episode about him. One of the reasons he wasn't impeached is because and this is uh, real devious, self-serving stuff. But there were three people who wanted to replace him. Uh, in the legislature, uh, well, two in the legislature and one who was the uh, lieutenant governor. And Nikki Haley was one of the people who wanted to run for governor. I, f- I forget who the other one is. It might have been McMaster, who's the current governor. But either way, nobody in the legislature wanted Andre Bauer, the lieutenant governor, to become governor because then he would have just been governor for eight years. And so they knew if they impeached Mark Sanford, they couldn't run for governor for eight to 10 years or whatever it was. And so there were enough factions in the legislature to not vote to impeach Sanford. Forget whether or not he had committed impeachable offenses for a second, because obviously that's the most important question. But beyond that, it's just the politics of it. Nobody wanted the lieutenant governor to become governor because then that would get in the way of their own ambitions. So that, I mean, the backdrop of a lot of this stuff is 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 always important. What kind of allies do you have? And Anthony Weiner did not have a friend in um, then Democratic leader, I think, uh, Nancy Pelosi. She didn't like him. And it was, you know, and that would be a Democratic seat if he had to resign. There would be a special election and no doubt a Democrat would win. All that stuff is is taken into account. Sanford was able to survive in addition because... He just stuck around and did his job. He apologized for what he did. 
He didn't. Yeah, do you want to remind people? Uh, not everyone maybe remembers. Sure. So Mark Sanford story. was the governor of South Carolina. He had been a congressman um, from, I think, the Charleston area. And he ran as a fiscal conservative. He had a wife named Jenny who he'd been with for years and four boys, Marshall, Landon, Bolton, and Blake, and seemed to be, you know, a great American success story. He emerged as the face of, as a, as a voter-friendly face of the Tea Party movement, rejecting stimulus funds after the 2008 financial crisis from, from President Obama and emerged as a foil to Obama, but not a... Uh, an unpleasant foil to Obama, somebody who just talked about fiscal conservatism and actually had a record of of believing in that. Uh, and then he just disappeared Father's Day 2009. Nobody knew where he was, including his staff. And they put out a story saying he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And it turned out he was in Argentina having an extramarital affair. And he came back and gave a press conference where he said he had been unfaithful to his wife. And he told the truth. Now, it was a bizarre, narcissistic press conference, but it was the truth that he'd been having an affair. There was an investigation into whether he used state funds for any of it, and he didn't. I think he paid back some, there, and there, was, there might have been some nominal fee or something like that. But the bottom line is he hadn't broken any laws. He had ended his marriage and embarrassed his wife and their, and their family. But he served out the remainder of his term. And... Then a few years later, ran for Congress and won back to it for his old house seat. And then he he ultimately lost in a primary. Donald Trump endorsed. He was critical of Trump. Donald Trump endorsed his primary rival. It was a low turnout election. And Sanford hadn't really run uh, much of a race. He left um, with millions of I think like a million and a half dollars in the bank, not running ads for the episode. I didn't interview Sanford, even though I, I knew him. At the time, and I talk about that in the episode about what it's like to know one of these politicians and kind of be deceived because I I bought into the idea that maybe he was actually running, uh, walking, uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. But beyond that, uh, we interview uh, his longtime chief of staff, a guy who had devoted his life to Sanford for like 15 years. And he gave his only interview on this, a guy named Scott English, and just told us what everything looked like from the inside and how weird it and strange it all was to be on the inside of a scandal um, and to be and to be duped by a guy you believed in. I'll be right back with Jake Tapper after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. How much of surviving one of these things depends on whether you deny and stay and fight versus, you know, answer all questions, come clean, um, and then try to stay? Are there examples of, of, of both of those being successful strategies? The, I mean, the, the, the paradigm of, of how you're supposed to handle these scandals according to like a, a, a disaster co- communicator, a disaster advisor, like a guy named Lanny Davis, who was a Democratic advisor to Bill Clinton during impeachment. And his advice is you get out all the, as soon as the scandal breaks, you get out all the information on your own terms, all of it, as soon as possible. Uh, and you take complete ownership for it and then let the chips fall where they may. That's the conventional wisdom in Washington of the best way to survive a scandal. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, in this age of balkanization of our politics where, you know, there are different sets of claimed facts on um, on partisan TV networks and partisan newspapers and magazines, uh, I think it is also that probably changes things too, because now you have a built-in support network for whatever you do, whatever happens. Uh, if you're depending on whether or not if if that if that is you are a a warrior for the left or the right, and so you know I don't know that there is a tried and true model for this is how you survive a scandal because it really is dependent on who you are, how many friends you have, uh, your party, what happens to your seat if you leave. All of that stuff is part of it. I mean, look at um, Governor Andrew Cuomo. He was done in. I mean, obviously, he was done in by his behavior. But beyond that, he had a Democratic attorney general looking into his behavior. So, it, you know, it'd be difficult to claim that it was partisan. Also, the perception that if he left, he would be replaced by a Democratic lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul. I mean, so there are just all these variables that make it very difficult to say what the rule is. I mean, I, I, I generally think as a reporter that the get it all out on your own terms, apologize, own it, answer questions about it is still the best advice. I mean, people don't really talk about Chris Christie and Bridgegate anymore. It gets mentioned but you know, yeah. Did. Look, that was an, that's another example. That's a better example and a more recent example than the Biden plagiarism example. These things maybe only last one cycle. It was also just I don't know that he didn't tell the truth. I don't want to sound like naive, especially post uh, uh, me being duped by Mark Sanford. But uh, as far as I know, Governor Christie told the truth about that incident uh and apologized for it and did a press conference where he just like answered every question and like to this day you know doesn't bristle if you ask him about it yeah i guess there's one category where you have to be careful and it's the category of scandal in which you're you're charged with a crime 
And the person I think of here for the second time charged with a series of federal crimes is Senator Bob Menendez. Yeah, but he denies it. No, so you kind of have no choice but to not, you know, unless you want to concede and plead guilty. It's one thing to concede the facts of a scandal, a political scandal, or some, you know, other social scandal. It's quite a different thing to admit to crimes. And most people wouldn't do that, at least not at the outset. So there is a perception, and this is the argument made by Menendez for his first corruption case, which is different from his current one. The first one had to do with uh, a big donor slash healthcare executive who had given him a lot of money and he had done favors for, and they had gone on vacation together. When I say given him a lot of money, I mean campaign contributions, perfectly legal ones. And the allegation was by the government that it was a quid pro quo, which you're not allowed to do. Give me $500,000 and I will make this decision for you that you're not allowed to do that. Uh, ultimately, that was a mistrial. Uh, and the argument by Menendez is the same article by a same argument by Rod Blagojevich in the first episode of United States of Scandal, which is this is our system. I was doing nothing different from anyone else. Maybe I was a little earthier about it. I think uh, the way that Blagojevich said it in our series is and pardon me for cursing, but he said I'm, I'm quoting. So it's not me cursing. Uh, I didn't say he said I, I said I didn't break the law. I didn't say I wasn't a fucking idiot. Um, he says that in, in our interview, uh, which is to say that he, you know, he wasn't subtle about it. He didn't gingerly navigate the rules. There is an argument that there's a lot of that prosecutors, uh, and I'm sure you disagree with this, uh, or maybe you don't, I don't know that, but that, that prosecutors often criminalize what is just politics. And we've seen in recent years, a trial against Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. Uh, I think he was, e I think he was either acquitted or that was a mistrial. Uh, we saw the conviction of Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell uh, overturned on appeal. Uh, and, we, you know, we have seen these arguments work, these arguments of you're just criminalizing politics. Yeah. Um, there's, it's very difficult in a quid pro quo to prove, you know, there are two categories, right? Somebody takes an official action in exchange for a campaign contribution. That's one. That's the, the example you were talking about. That's very, very difficult to show to be illegal because both of those things are in the ordinary course allowable, right? You take official action as part of your job, you vote on things, and you get political contributions. And the connection between those two things has to be really, really, really clear and compelling. The easier criminal case to bring, and is most of what you see brought, is when someone takes an official action and they get paid for it, but not in a, in a, not in a bona fide political contribution, but some other thing like a gift or cash or, you know, in Menendez's case, allegedly gold bars. Or there was that that member of Congress in the South some years ago who who I think had six William figures. William Jefferson, Congressman William Jefferson. Well, hey, didn't he have $90,000 in his freezer? Yep. Um, so th those are easier things to show as criminal if the thing you get paid, if the quid, part of the quid pro quo, is something you, you use to line your pockets with. That's how we convicted the Speaker of the, of the New York State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, and the uh, the Senate uh, Majority Leader as well, but but I, I hear you now. I think in the Menendez case, given the gold bars, it's a different burden for him. Uh, look, I mean, one of the things I like about this series is letting the people who are on the other side of it have their say. Yeah. Um. And I mean, I wish that Sanford had participated, but it's still a great episode. You know, the the episodes end up being about something more than just the scandal. The first one with Blagojevich ends up being about this issue we're discussing, the 
the criminalization of politics, where are the lines, et cetera, et cetera. The second episode about Sanford becomes about being duped by a political uh, politician's uh, political persona. So Scott English was good for that um, because he was duped too. Some of the other episodes um, d- dive into other issues. But one of the things that was interesting for me when it came to the Valerie Plame episode was the argument from the conservatives on that, the Bush White House, which is uh, that the prosecutor, pa- uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the same prosecutor in the uh, Blagojevich case, that Pat Fitzgerald knew early on, he knew who leaked Valerie Plame's name to uh, the columnist Bob Novak. And just for people who um, don't remember all the details about this, this is 2003. The U.S. has been at war in Iraq for about a year. One of the main arguments for war, not the only one, but the one of the main ones was that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Valerie Plame's husband, Ambassador Joe Wilson, former ambassador, was asked by the CIA to go before the war, investigate whether or not the Iraqis were trying to buy yellow cake uranium from Niger. He came back. He was debriefed, basically said no. They went to war. And then he wrote a column, I think, in June or July in the New York Times. He writes a a piece that says what I did not, you know, what I didn't find in Africa, basically saying that the Bush administration's case for war was built on a lie. That's his argument. A couple of days after that, Bob Novak writes a column saying about like, well, why was he even sent to investigate? And the allegation was that it was a junket because his wife worked for the CIA. And with that was the outing of her name, even though she was an undercover CIA operative. And the question is, well, where did that come from? Why did they leak it? And and I think the prevailing conventional wisdom, the narrative is, this was the Bush administration out for revenge against Joe Wilson. And that may be with some of the people who leaked the name, or at the very least, they were trying to undermine Joe Wilson as a credible source of information, um, which is not the same thing as revenge, uh, but also not necessarily a good thing to do when it comes to outing the, you know his wife by name, who's a CIA operative. But what's interesting is the actual outing, the first person to give the name to Bob Novak was Dick Armitage, who was a deputy to Colin Powell at the State Department, and he gave it to Bob Novak, and it was more of just gossip. It wasn't, Novak had run into Wilson in the green room at Meet the Press, thought he was a, in his own words, asshole, Novak's words, and then in a conversation with Armitage, it's like, who is this guy? Why did he get sent? And Armitage, it sounds like he was kind of gossipy, said, oh, you know, he got sent because his wife works for the CIA in counterproliferation, blah, blah, blah. Not out of revenge in Novak's view or Armitage's view, just chit-chat. So then the argument from the, from the Bush people in retrospect on this whole scandal is Pat Fitzgerald knew that early on because Armitage disclosed it early on. So did Novak. So why did he spend two years investigating? Well, the argument is he was trying to make sure that no other laws were broken, et cetera, et cetera. And there wasn't, you know, this wasn't a revenge campaign by the Bush White House. But the only charge he ended up filing was perjury against Scooter Libby, one of Cheney's aides, uh, for remembering a conversation he had with Tim Russert differently. And this, again, comes into the line of People in Washington thinking prosecutors can be out of control looking for crimes when maybe they should exist, but don't. And that also gets into the whole thing of like the real scandal in Washington is not what's illegal, but what's legal. Is that Michael Kinsley? I don't know who said that. 
but it but uh it's wise enough to to be him but <laughs> but I, but I'm not sure who said it but but it is true I mean a lot of what is allowed is perfectly legal and at least when it came to the sliming of uh Joe Wilson and the leaking of Valerie Plame's name it does not appear as though a law was broken yeah there's another phrase people use awful but lawful yeah I don't think that was Kinsley no it's too he wouldn't have he wouldn't have rhymed he's not a rhymer <laughs> he wouldn't have rhymed in that way I'm just wondering, in light of, of the work you've done and, and the show you've created, if a Bill Clinton-like scandal happened today, if it was a, you know, the same guy, would it have played out differently? Do we have different sensibilities now with respect to what he did? I don't know how differently it would have played out because ultimately Democrats rallied around him. So I don't know that you can say like social media or the existence of MSNBC would have helped him more. He, he already had broad support largely because of the job he had done as president. People thought he did a good job. And then again, remember, he was impeached not for cheating on his wife with a vulnerable 22-year-old intern. He was impeached for committing perjury and suborning perjury, which, you know, arguably he was guilty of. Uh, and he wasn't convicted in the Senate because there's an incredibly high bar. You need 67 votes to convict, which is why bringing an impeachment of anyone is generally a more political, more of a political act than it is a legal act, because in this day and age, to get more than how many, to get to get 25, 30 members of the opposing party to go along with going after somebody on their own side is a tall order. So I don't know that it would have played out differently. Does any of this work that you've done counsel you in any direction as a, a daily journalist on how to cover these scandals and trials? relating to the presumptive Republican nominee? I would just say as a general note, it's always good for, for people to remember, people, journalists to remember that A, these people are not our friends. There are people we cover. B, they have a side to tell. They have a story to tell and it shouldn't be discounted. I don't mean like Anthony Weiner has a story to tell. That stuff's disgusting. But I mean with the underage girl. But, um, you know, when it comes to allegations, like, like you know, Bob McDonald is a perfect example. I don't remember doing a lot of major coverage of it, but his argument that like he didn't do anything illegal ultimately prevailed. And yet his career was destroyed. Yeah. Well, look, there are categories of people who get charged with things and they didn't do it and they're innocent. And there are categories of people who get charged with things. And maybe it wasn't technically because of how the law is interpreted or the law changes as it did in the McDonald case, wasn't criminal in nature, but still may have been horrible and disgusting and unethical. I mean, in McDonald's case, the, the way his case got overturned in the Supreme Court was that the that among the official actions that he took were arranging meetings with members of his administration. And the court found that that was too amorphous and, and, and overbroad. And the mere arranging of meetings as opposed to giving out of official, um, you know, money from the state or voting on a particular thing as might happen with a legislator, that's more in the nature of traditional official action. But, you know, the taking of gifts from a donor, I don't think anybody was applauding. Right. You're just asking how, you know, what, what lessons have I learned? Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm not saying that Bob McDonald. No, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sticking up for the prosecutors. Great. It, it's great. On this no, point. And, and you should. <laughs> I mean, th that's, uh, I, I might even be pushing you a little harder on this issue because you're a prosecutor, yeah. but, but I just think that they're, you know, prosecutors are not always correct. No. And prosecutors tend to be very aggressive and that's the role that they play. It's the same thing for me as a journalist, you know, 
sometimes somebody will say, I'm too aggressive on X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, that is actually my job. Like not necessarily how I actually feel inside about an issue, but it I, it is my job to be aggressive. And which, which is funny in the sense that I know that prosecutors are aggressive. And that is why when I read the Robert Herr memo, and I know, I, I think you disagree with me on this, but my perspective on his comments about Biden's age and this and that were, were this is what prosecutors do. They write these documents. They're rude. They're obnoxious. They uh, are not kind about the guy they're investigating or gal. And, you know, this reminds me of a million different documents I've read on, you know, it's like when they were going after when Weiss, I think, was going after Hunter Biden and had that whole presentation about stuff that Hunter Biden was spending money on other than his children. Right. That Like that's a not that's a legally irrelevant document. It's just they're being they're being dicks. Right. I mean, that's the point of it. Are you quoting someone when you say that? No, it's my perspective on prosecutors, your job and journalists, too. Our job is to be dicks sometimes. That's the point. On, on prior occasions when you've used language, you've been quoting other people. I just wanted to make sure that. No, no. The use no. of dicks. I violated my own. Ladies rule. and gentlemen. I violated was, my own came rule. out of the mouth of Jake. Sorry, Tucker I himself. apologize. Well, it's a podcast. But, you know, with respect to the to the Robert Herr report, the difference is in all the other examples you're giving. They're, they were part of charging documents. And so the principle um, at the Justice Department is generally outside of the scope of special prosecutors and special counsels is if you make your accusations against Menendez or anyone else, they can be fought in open court and they can be disproven and rebutted. And when you decline a case, as Robert Hur did, and you nonetheless put in salacious commentary about the person against whom you're declining, that works a fundamental unfairness. That's, that's the difference. So the counter argument as you know, but just to explain for people listening, is Robert Hur decided to not prosecute a president, even though he thinks that the president violated the law on at least one occasion. And he needs to, therefore, give a good explanation. And his explanation was, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this guy will come across before a jury as a sweet, befuddled old man. Yeah, but therefore, that, that, that's, that's not, I mean, I think... People have had disagreements over their reading of the her report, mm-hmm. and, and there's one sentence where he talks about the matter in the way you've described. But if you if you look at the whole report, and this is this is my view and and the view of, of many people, he didn't think there was a provable crime. In part, it's because he would have been sympathetic to a jury, but it goes far beyond that. And among other things, that where there was no plus factor, no ag- aggravating factor, such as lack of cooperation or obstruction of justice or any of the other things that are present in the Mar-a-Lago case. You don't charge. And and that, that's a more fundamental reason for not bringing the charge than, you know, he might seem old and, and have a bad memory. Well, but just uh, two other points I'll make on this. And then, I, you know, I, my job as a reporter is just to read this stuff. I'm not saying he made the right decision or the wrong decision, Robert Herr. The, the, the other two points I'd raise is one that Ellie Honig uh, commented on, which is in 2017, according to the Herr report, Joe Biden tells his ghostwriter that he has classified documents in his house. And that's 2017. And it isn't until I think 2022 that they inform the authorities that he has classified documents. And that's after the Donald Trump classified documents case. So in any case, my only point is Ellie Ellie wrote a whole essay about this for New York Magazine in which he argues this is five years of Joe Biden not cooperating, not resisting cooperation, but not cooperating because he knows he has classified documents or whatever. 
So, I mean, that's for you and Ellie to fight about. Yeah. Maybe I mean, on my show. I'll, I'll fight with him about that. And it's then a, um, It's a it much actually, different ball of wax than, than the conduct that Donald Trump engaged in. Well, that that's the, the other point I wanted to make. Robert Hur, but Robert Hur makes that argument. Yeah, he does. He has a whole he does. section. He does. And I could see a conservative or a Donald Trump appointee saying or, or fan saying, why is that even in here? You're making the case that what Joe Biden did is not even half as bad as what Donald Trump did for reasons X, Y, Z. Why is that even in there? So, I mean, Robert Hur also makes that argument. So I am, you know, I, I just think it's a complicated document that he put forward. And I just think all the areas here are worth discussing. Um, and if I had been Joe Biden, I would have not gotten mad about. I think the advice would have been just embrace the part of it that clears you and says you you they're not charging you. And what Donald Trump is, did is a thousand times worse. But because Joe Biden reacted the way he did, it became a much bigger story. Well, you know, it's so funny, right? Because I, I think I was on your show some years ago where I made the point that any document relating to anything connected to Donald Trump, he would say it was a total exoneration of him. And I think I said, I think it was on your show, that, you know, Donald Trump could go into a Chinese restaurant, get the menu and say, this menu is a complete exoneration of me, even if it wasn't, even if it was an indictment of him. And it's interesting that that the Biden folks, um, I mean, I think they did, but maybe not as forceful. I mean, I, you know, Ian Sam and they others did. did. Yeah. And then he got mad. The import of that report is no crime, no crime, no crime. And that you know, I, I think I've also said recently, you know, what kind of a world are we in when he gets exonerated and it's still a political disaster for, for Biden, Trump gets charged four times and it's a political bonanza for him. What does that tell us about the nature of scandal? I mean, it, it tells us that Donald Trump is not a credible source. That's not new. I, I just think also Donald Trump did not invent shamelessness, but he has taken it to a new place. And, you know, I think that there are probably a lot of politicians that are looking at how he has weathered scandals and thinking they can repeat that. And the truth is, is I don't know that it's repeatable. Donald Trump just has a huge fan base that allows him to skirt this stuff. He also has a bunch of politicians who are terrified of him and terrified of the fan base. Uh, and therefore, he is able to navigate these waters in a way that George Santos would not be or. I don't know what's going to happen with uh, Congressman Matt Gates. The Justice Department has not prosecuted him. The Ethics Committee is now investigating. Who knows what's going to happen? If the House Ethics Committee comes forward and says and, and provides a document, a conclusion that Matt Gates has behaved in an inappropriate way, he is not going to be able to pull a Trump because he has a lot of enemies in Congress and he is not Donald Trump. He doesn't have the fan base. He has, certainly has fans. I'm, this is a bunch of hypotheticals. I have no idea again, that anything bad is going to happen to him. My point is, though, that, that Donald Trump is a case unto himself. It cannot be repeated. I think a lot of people are going to try to repeat what he does, but I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily possible. He is uh, this very special case. Why is Nikki Haley still in the race? I think that she, I think there are a lot of reasons why she's in the race. One of them is I think she probably legitimately believes that Donald Trump, as she has come to realize how bad in her view uh he would be for the republican party and for the country well i, think I mean chris christie had that view too but he still got out right i think that there is I th she has financial support uh from other republicans that want her to be president and don't want donald trump to be president and i think there is probably also this there exists this possibility that donald trump will be criminally convicted before the republican convention and if that happens 
what happens? I think that she probably wants to be standing there as the alternative for the GOP. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen or even that uh, Eugene Debs like he wouldn't be running for president from prison. But I, I think that's a possibility. In a completely different vein, uh, I don't want to let you go without having you say a word or two about how you think the situation in Israel is unfolding, both uh, in Israel itself and how the Biden administration is seeing the situation on the ground with Netanyahu and Israel. It's a very complicated story, and yet on another level, it's very simple. It's complicated because President Biden does not like or trust the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and doesn't think that he is waging this war against Hamas wisely, humanely, effectively. By the same token, there is a reluctance of critics of Israel to discuss A, what happened on October 7th to Israel, B, what any other Western country would be doing if the same had happened to them or to us, and C, the fact that as of right now, Hamas could get a ceasefire if they agreed to return the hostages and give up power. Now, I don't know why to some people that might seem a ridiculous argument. The Egyptians tried to broker it at one point, I think in December. They tried to broker uh, a ceasefire agreement where Israel would stop bombing and stop attacking. And Israel would give over, I don't know how many, Palestinian prisoners. And in return, uh, Hamas would return the hostages and give up power. And some, some other person or organization would take over in Gaza. So it's complicated. It's ugly. It's very difficult to cover. Any war story is difficult to cover. Any war story where innocent people are dying is difficult to cover. Um, I, but I just, I don't see the story in the same way that a lot of people who think the story is not just about what the IDF is doing right now in Gaza, although that is a major part of the story. The story is also the fact that of what Hamas is continuing to do to Israel and to its own people, because they are on record saying they don't care how many Palestinians die uh, in this war. And they are on record saying that the tunnels are for Hamas, not for the innocent Palestinians. So it's, it's just a super awful story. Speaking of super awful stories, the, the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine yeah. is coming up this Saturday on the 24th. Yeah. How do you think that's going to unfold in the coming it's, months? It's uh, uh, awful because, A, uh, the signal being sent to Putin right now from Congress, from the Republicans in Congress, is we're not sending more funding. Uh, if you talk to uh, people who work in the governments of NATO allies, they are incredibly upset about the signal that it's sending to Putin and what Putin will take from this, what lesson he will take. You know, a few years ago, to say that there was a Putin wing of the GOP seemed unnecessarily hyperbolic, maybe. But it's hard to escape the fact that there is that right now. People who, commentators and politicians who actually their sympathies are with Putin and not with 
Zelensky and the people of Ukraine. And it's just, it's so bizarre as somebody, I think I'm a little older than you, Preet. I'm almost 55. How old are you? I'm 55. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm a little, I'm teeny, I'm a teeny bit younger than you. And you and I were raised in our formative years with Ronald Reagan as president. And Ronald Reagan's whole mantra was that the Soviet Union was a, quote, evil empire. That's right. And he wasn't wrong. It was an evil empire. And that's not to say that the people of Russia or the Soviet Union are evil, but the government was, and it still is. And it's weird to see Reagan's party act like this. I don't know why you say that. Tucker Carlson says the subways are very nice there. (laughs) The subways look great. I mean, Mussolini made the trains run on time, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do if you don't care about freedom. Congratulations on the series, Jake Tapper, United States of Scandal. I should say when it's on. How do, how do people Sunday know nights it's... at nine. Sunday, Sunday nights, nights at, at nine. nine. And the next episode, the next episode this Sunday is about the John Edwards affair, which is shocking. And we sit down with his girlfriend and the mother of his daughter, Riel Hunter. And she has a lot to say, and it is very interesting. Well, people should watch. Jake Tapper, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Preet. Always good talking to you. My conversation with Jake Tapper continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for Insiders, we discuss Tapper's writing process and the new book he's working on. It's a nonfiction book, and it's about prosecutors. Uh-oh. It's about from EDNY, from the Eastern District of New York. It's a, okay. And it's a positive story. What is that office? The Eastern District of New York. <laughs> to try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by addressing the death of Alexei Navalny, the fierce and brave opposition leader in Russia. He died suddenly last Friday, after reportedly losing consciousness in the penal colony where he was serving a three-decade sentence for overlapping quote-unquote crimes like extremism. He was 47 years old. Navalny was Putin's most prominent critic and loudest political opponent. He was arrested in January of 2021, five months after being poisoned and narrowly surviving. He recovered from the poisoning in Germany. And then what did he do? Even knowing Putin had tried to kill him? something most people wouldn't do. He went back to Russia, the place of maximum peril, the place where Putin finally finished the job. All over the world, leaders, politicians, and activists were quick to place the blame for Navalny's death squarely on the shoulders of Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, which is where it belongs. His death is tragic and galling, a horrible reminder of the power of Putin's Kremlin to silence all who dare challenge it. After news of Navalny's death broke, people gathered across the globe to mourn, from Moscow to Berlin, to Paris, to London, to Copenhagen, and to New York. A mountain of flowers appeared at the Solovetsky Stone Memorial in Moscow, which commemorates victims of the Stalin regime. Hundreds of public mourners were detained in Russia over the weekend. The New York Times interviewed a woman who said, quote, They are scared of Navalny in jail. They are scared of dead Navalny. They are scared of the people who bring flowers here to the stone. End quote. The news is especially potent 
as the war in Ukraine approaches its two-year mark. President Biden spoke after news of Navalny's death. He said, quote, He was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and where it applied to everybody, end quote. Another Russian human rights advocate, Putin critic, chess grandmaster, and my friend, Garry Kasparov, wrote on X, quote, Putin tried and failed to murder Navalny quickly and secretly with poison, and now he has murdered him slowly and publicly in prison. He was killed for exposing Putin and his mafia as the crooks and thieves they are, end quote. The following clip of Navalny circulated widely in the hours after the news broke of his death. Before he returned to Russia in 2021, he bravely foreshadowed his own murder. Listen, I've got something very obvious to tell you. You're not allowed to give up. If they decide to kill me, it means that we are incredibly strong. Rest in power, Alexei Navalny. May the world never forget your sacrifice, your service, your fight against corruption and evil. My deepest condolences to the family and friends of this brave, brave man. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jake Tapper. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE, your Mavox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The deputy editor is Celine Rohr. The editorial producer is Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on? Oh, Mom. <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.